Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you grabbed one of our guest Bibles in the back, we're on page 226. Uh, just so you know, those, those Bibles back there are a gift to you. If you don't own your own Bible or if uh, you know someone who doesn't have a Bible and you would like to take one home as a gift uh, to them or to keep for yourself, those are there for you. They're uh, back there by the doors on the little wooden stands. Um, some of them are brand new. Others have you know, a little bit of use on them, but any one that you want is yours free to take. Uh, so please do that if you need one. Uh, we're going to pick up this morning more or less where we, where we left off last week, where we looked at the life of Hannah, the mother of Samuel the prophet, um, who made a vow to Yahweh out of her barrenness for uh, if the Lord would give her a son, that she would dedicate that child back to God. And she did just that. And we're going to pick up the story about her son here, beginning in chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses of, of this chapter here with you uh, just now. Uh, chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli, that is the priest. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And that, of course, is the, the, the oil lamp of the tabernacle that was lit every evening, and it would burn through the night, and it would extinguish with the dawn. Okay? And so you're going to need to remember that later on. And Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. Suddenly, the Lord called out, Samuel. Yes, Samuel replied. What is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. So he did. Then the Lord called out again, Samuel. Again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, my son, Eli said. Go back to bed. Can you hear the irritation in his voice yet? Go back to bed. You parents know what I'm talking about. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time, and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, go and lie down again, and if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. And the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. If someone were to come to you and ask you this question, how would you reply? What is the greatest danger the people of God face? Is it perhaps going without? Some sort of poverty of some kind, having a lack of resources? Perhaps you might be tempted to say persecution when the world around us is, is seeking to silence the gospel and, and restrict our worship and cause us to, to run and hide and be afraid to be Christians in the public sphere. What about spiritual oppression? We, after all, have, a, have an enemy that's prowling like a lion looking for whom he might devour and destroy. 
Well, in response to those things, the scriptures say a lot. You know, Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that our Heavenly Father already knows all of our needs, so we don't have to worry about tomorrow, do we? We know that, that we, if we focus on, on, on God and seek him and his kingdom first and his righteousness, that all the things that we need in life will be provided by God. He will take care of us. Elsewhere, Jesus promised, yes, just to his disciples, yes, you will have trouble in the world. People will drag you in, into courts and they will accuse you and they will slander you and they will revile you. Nevertheless, he promises his personal presence with his people in the world. And of course, according to Ephesians chapter 6, God himself provides his people with armor with which we can withstand whatever attack might come our way from the enemy. So what then is the greatest danger to the life and health of the people of God. Well, I would contend that it would be the absence of his word. The absence of his word. And that's precisely the context for Israel in the time that we just read from here a moment ago. Look again there in verse 1 in the second half of that verse. It says, In those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the one who, who delivered his people and the, the one who spoke, the one whose glorious presence dwelled amongst his people, who, who went, went before them and, and stayed right in the middle of them, the very inspiration behind every prophetic utterance, that God has gone almost completely silent. And you know why. This is coming out of the time of the judges, right? That time when, when the people of God were not faithful to the word of God. They, they did not make the word of God central to their life. Instead, we're told time and time throughout the book of Judges that in this period of time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They lived according to their own value system. They, they obeyed their own appetites and their own sense of con conscience and what, what they deemed good and bad and right and wrong. And they were a wicked, rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted people. And that's a mouthful. But that's, that defines the people in that day. They had so rejected the word of the Lord that at some level at least, he has given them over to the silence that they apparently prefer. The people would have rathered that the Lord stay, stay quiet. Because at the end of the day, if he were to speak, they weren't going to listen anyway. And so, there you have it. There's nothing worse in my estimation, for the people of God, than that. The word of God must remain at the center of the people of God. It is the life of the people of God. And without the word of God, you have no people of God. You can have all the stuff. You can have nice buildings, and you can have brand new pav covered pavilions and playgrounds. You can have pizza. A lot of peas there, isn't there? Lots of, I like alliteration. Think of some other peas. You can have all the people, right? You can have all the wonderful things. That, that You can have all the programs. You can have all the stuff that churches clamor after and invest all their time and their energy to pursue. But at the end of the day, if the word of God is not found at the heart of the people of God, then you will be rich in all the wrong things. I heard a story once about a, a seminary professor who was uh, criticizing one of his students for investing too much time and energy in ministry to some rinky-dink little country church that by all appearances was, had one foot in the grave and was about to close its doors. 
You know, why spend so much time and so much energy? You, you're only one person. Your time is precious. You, you only, you, there's only so much you can do. Why, why take what little opportunity you have for ministry and essentially waste it there? And to be fair, I kind of get where he's coming from, right? You're only one person, right? You want to go where there's fruit. You want to go where you know that your, your efforts are going are gonna to make a difference. You don't want to just invest what little time and energy and, and ministry effort you have into some place where it's just going to fall on deaf ears and, and no one's going to respond and, and they're, 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 predeter- they're on a predetermined path and, and there's nothing you can do that's going to change it. I, I understand the, the heart and the sentiment behind it, but it always struck me. First of all, um, well, God cares about those precious saints too. Does he not? I mean, God cares, yeah, of course he cares about, you know, the big churches that are making all the impacts in the, the community and the region and the world. But does he not care about the, the little churches as well? You know, and there's a lot of them around here. You take a drive any direction in the countryside. It's just like where I'm from in central Ohio. You take a drive in any direction, you'll, you'll pass half a dozen churches on, in just a, a short amount of time. Little churches just sprinkled all throughout the countryside. And that's the type of church that this student was going to and was being criticized about. But not only does God care about the little churches, but even more, if you remove the preaching of God's word from their midst, they will be a dead church. They will die. I don't just mean they'll age out because there's no new people coming in and all the older folks eventually pass away. I mean, spiritually, they will cease to live if you deprive them of the word of God. To deny a church the word of God is to sentence it to death. And we're seeing this playing out in our midst in whole denominations that are dying for lack of the word of God. But you know what? It's not just enough for the word of God to be proclaimed. The word of God must also be received. Right? You know, starvation may come by the absence of food, but it can also come by the lack of appetite. What good is it to have the the ministry of the word at the heart of your church if it's not being received and if it's not being responded to? You know, last week I I made the point about how the scriptures say that we're not just to be hearers of the word only, are we? It's not enough to show up on Sunday morning and be, you know, be willing to sit through another one of those, you know, another one of those sermons. You think we think we're doing our duty. We show up, we check it off the list. We've done, you you know, my friends, they don't go to church. I, I go to church, I listen to the sermon, I'm there every week, I'm a good Christian. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough just to be a hearer of the word. It's not enough to just show up and check things off the list. We are to be doers of the word. We have to receive the word, we have to believe the word, but then we have to respond to the word. We have to live it out. And here is a people that have failed to do it all. And, be, and because of that, the voice of the Lord can no longer be heard. He has all but entirely stopped speaking. And even if he had, no one would listen. Now that's a pretty bleak situation, is it there in verse 1? If that were the the sum total of the, the story in our passage here today, we'd all leave here kind of depressed and gloomy and sad. And fortunately, um, that's not the, the total story. There's a, a significant shift in the verses that come, and it centers on the fact that God in this point in time, is about to call a prophet. 
And don't miss this idea of calling because it's, it's, it's the, the, the text is saturated with this idea. I believe it's like 11 times in just seven verses or so. You, you see this idea of calling over and over and over. God is calling Samuel. God is calling Samuel. He's hearing the call of God upon his life. And yeah, at first you have to wonder when you're, when you're reading through, especially when you're reading out loud. I'll tell you, there's something different about um, reading the scripture out loud in public than just reading it silently in my head, you know, alone. You, you feel things a little differently, and I, I hope you hear things a little differently when it's publicly read. Um, but you, you feel this almost like exasperation in Samuel's inability to understand who's calling him, right? You, you, you can feel the irritation of Eli, you know, if, if we understand the time of night, this is, you know, the last, maybe the last hour before the sun comes up. It's, it's that precious golden moment where your bed is the most comfortable. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I have this uncanny ability to wake up, like, right before my alarm goes off. And it's the moment when I'm, I'm most at rest, I'm most at peace, and I, I hate the sound of, of that alarm. And it's hard, sometimes hard for me to fall back asleep at that point, too. So you can hear Eli, like, ugh, it's not time to get up yet. And you keep coming in here. Why, can, why do you keep doing this? And you as the reader are saying, Samuel, come on, it's not Eli. How many times are you going to go? He's not playing a trick on you. This isn't something that you, know, that, that you should just be so slow to comprehend what's going on. And yet the text tells us what, what the problem was. And it's not his youth, by the way. Now, according to Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, tradition has it that Samuel is, is around 12 years old at this time. But the text does not say it was because of his youth that he was unable to understand who was calling him and what was going on. The answer there is in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again with me. It says, um, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. This is utterly unprecedented in his young life. So that's not sort of an accusation against Samuel. It's just the explanation. This is what's happening here. This is something unprecedented. He's never been taught how to hear the, Lord, the voice of the Lord, if the, if the Lord were to speak. So really, this is more of an accusation on Eli, isn't it? It's an indictment against Eli and, and his priesthood, his fatherhood. He's the one that's raising the boy, and yet the boy has no idea how to recognize the voice of God when he hears it. And we shouldn't be surprised when this happens in chapter 3 because just back in chapter 2, we get a, a snapshot of the type of father, the type of spiritual leader that Eli actually is. It says there in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, the, his sons, the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. But listen, a more literal translation says they did, it's because they did not know the Lord. Now, I know there are some, some wonderful godly parents in here who for no fault of your own, have children that are scoundrels, all right, who, who, don't, who, who don't follow Jesus, who don't live for God, who have, have wandered, all right? Um, I'm not suggesting that just because that's the case in, in your life that, that you are a failure, all right? So don't, don't hear, hear me wrong. But I think what the text is trying to tell us is that Eli has a direct responsibility for the behavior of his children. They not only don't know the Lord, but he allows them to persist in their wickedness. It's like he has signed off on it. He has allowed them to blaspheme God in the temple of God. 
This is an accusation against the priest, not against the child. I wonder how many times God had tried to speak to Eli and his sons. How many times the voice of the Lord had been resounding in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary. And yet, it must have fallen on deaf ears. But more importantly, it fell on deaf hearts. They were, they were a priesthood that were corrupted and rebellious. They had rejected the, the word of the Lord. And as a result, anyone within the sphere of their, of their ministry was, was not being equipped with the ability to hear the voice of God and to understand what it was. Yes, it was Eli. It is true. You could, you could point out, Pastor Sean, um, after the third time when Samuel goes, it was Eli who finally understood what was going on. And I think there's, there's something, too, uh, where it says back in, in verse uh, 2 that he was almost blind. Right? He's talking about his blindness, but I think there's a connection here. There's an almost blindness to Eli. He's, he has just enough sight left that he can actually eventually see what's happening. He is the one that counsels Samuel to go back and to, you know, how he is to respond to the Lord. But his instruction to Samuel reeks of a sort of do as I say, not as I do type of approach to parenting. Right? He gets it. But it's, it's only for Samuel, it's not for himself. Do as I say, Samuel, not as I do. And fortunately for Israel, Samuel does. He does do what he is told to do by the priest. And this is what sets him apart from the, the wickedness of, of Eli and his sons and the wickedness of the nation. It is the posture of the boy's heart. He is indeed open. He does exactly what he's told to do. He's heard the voice and now he's open to the voice. Speak, your servant is listening. I don't know you. I've never heard you before. I know probably very little even about you, but I'm available. And I wonder if there's not something right here that is instructive for you and for me when it comes to our own posture towards the word of God. Is this your heart's attitude when you open the passage or open the scriptures to a passage to read? How often do you just pull out your Bible, you know, on, on, you know, if you have a, a printed version like this one or on your phone and you're just, you know, you're just glazing over the words. You just kind of, you know, maybe you're on a reading plan. If you're on a reading plan, I commend you, by the way. That's a great thing to do. But the, the one flaw with the reading plan, if you're not careful, is you can just like, you just want to get through it. Because <laughs> the Bible's big. There's a lot there. And even if you're giving yourself a whole year to work your way through it, it's a lot. And so the temptation is, I'm going to breeze through it, I'm going to check it off my list, and I've done my, my duty. How often do we just go to the Bible when we have some point we want to prove to our friends? Right? We've got some sort of, we're arguing about something, we're debating about something, and we've got our, our favorite proof text that we want to go to to, make, to win an argument. There's a particular posture of the heart behind that. Is that Samuel's? How often do you just skip the parts you don't like? <laughs> or, you know, maybe whole books or maybe an entire testament that's just boring. It, just, it doesn't you know, make me feel good when I read it. So I'm just going to dismiss that part of the scriptures. Or how about this? How often when you are, when you are reading the scriptures or when you're hearing them proclaimed or, or you hear it maybe on a podcast some, and God is tugging at your heart, how often do you just sort of ignore that? 
and push it aside or say maybe later. Maybe I'll respond to that later. I've got time. It's not convenient right now. You know, God has a tendency to speak, you know, when the bed is most comfortable. <laughs> right? There's, there's a discomfort to the timing of the, of, the, of the word of God. And how often do we, do we prefer our comfort or prefer what is convenient to me at the expense of, of his voice? I just wonder how many people in our churches today who call themselves Christians are ever even in the word of God to begin with. Samuel's actions in our text tell us a lot about his character. But you know, so do the Lord's. The Lord's actions tell us a lot about his character. It's amazing to me that his word comes at all to a tabernacle and to a people who are so thoroughly corrupt, so entrenched in their stubbornness and in their refusal to receive the word of God. But I love even more. I love the way that God acts towards Samuel, the, the way that he treats him. He's not, he's not harsh. He's not irritable. But he's what? He's gentle. He's, he's sweet. He's patient. God makes allowance for Samuel's ignorance, for his slowness, for his lack of understanding. He calls him by name. You know, Yahweh doesn't need a name tag, does he? He doesn't have the limitations that we have. He knows this boy through and through, just like he knows you and me through and through. And he shows up and he calls him by name and there's this sweet, personal, tender intimacy in this moment. A tenderness in his calling that is very unlike what is all too often my own disposition towards my kids when they don't respond when and how I want them to. If it was me, put my name in here and it's filling the blank with one of my kids' names and I have to say it three times, oh boy, there's some, there's some real irritation by that third time. We, we, we've tried to raise them to respond immediately and completely to what they're told from their parents. We don't, we don't give them a chance for us to have to say it multiple times and if we do, there's trouble. And yet here we have God showing just this incredible patience that might sinful human eyes and fatherhood have trouble understanding and comprehending and connecting with. Yes, he's the, the Lord, the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, but more deeply, he's the heavenly father, isn't he? Yes, he is holy, and yes, he judges, and yes, he will not stand for evil, and yet he exercises restraint in his anger. And that is a concept you can find all throughout the scriptures from beginning to end, that God uh, the, the idea of long-suffering, the, the idea of patient, uh, patience carries with it this idea of withholding, with restraining, where he has every right to be angry, every right to be irritated, every right to judge, every right to be wrathful, and yet time and time again we see him restraining his angry, anger, restraining or delaying his wrath. He is a God who deals patiently with people, and not just the righteous, by the way. He deals patiently with the unrighteous, even with those who deserve it least, we see him restrain and delay and act patiently. Second Peter 3, 9, God is being patient with his return. Remember, Peter is dealing with a church in the midst of persecution who are wondering, like, is Jesus ever going to come back? 
Would he just come back already and make right all of these wrongs and put an end to our suffering and give us life on earth as it is in heaven and and take away all of the the problems and wipe away all of our tears? We know it's promised. We know it's going to happen. Why is he taking so long? Why is he being so slow? And Peter says, God is being patient. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but for all to be saved. Yes, you can be sure, be sure the day of the Lord is coming. There is a evil will face a reckoning once and for all. But he's not being slow. He's being merciful. Verse 15, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Isn't that beautiful? You want to know the heart of God? Start right there. Patience that people might be saved. Paul's own testimony echoes that. First Timothy 1.16. And by the way, Peter, in, the, in this Second uh, Peter chapter 3 passage that I just read from, makes reference to Paul. And this is what the reference is to. Paul's own testimony, 1 Timothy 1.16, where Paul says, God had mercy on me. Remember his story. The great persecutor of the church. If anyone deserved to be crushed by God and pulverized and annihilated and judged... Rightly, it would have been God. God would have done it to him. And yet, God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience. And even with even the worst sinners, that others might realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. I think Paul's point is, if God can be patient with a guy like me, well, you can be sure that he can be patient even for someone like you. He makes allowances for ignorance. He makes allowance for slowness. He makes allowance for lack of understanding. And he's willing to give time to hear and to understand and to know him. There's this beautiful progression um, to the Lord's nearness to Samuel that's kind of hidden in this, this story. And we kind of missed it in the NLT you have to look at a more literal translation to see it. Um, in the first three callings, the first three times that Yahweh says Samuel's name, um, there's, there's a, a distance that is felt in the original language, a distance from the voice to the boy. But then when you get down to verse 10, when Samuel returns for that last time and, and is ready, he knows what he's listening for. He knows what to do. He knows who's speaking. It says in verse 10, literally, that the Lord came and stood. Isn't that interesting? That once, once the boy is ready, once the boy is attuned to the voice, once the boy has the, the proper posture and, and attitude and disposition towards the word of God, God himself comes and he stands and he's present. And the more open Samuel is, the closer he comes because that's his desire That's what he wants to do through his word. He wants to come and draw near to you and to me. He wants to make himself known. He wants to reveal his word and his will for your life and for my life. But how do we reconcile that? That God is patient and that God is merciful and he desires to draw near and he makes allowances for our ignorance and our slowness and our our lack of comprehension. How do we reconcile that with with, with the point we started with? That God withholds his word from those who stubbornly and persistently refuse it. How do we recognize, is this two different gods? Is this, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? 
two, two people, like a, a double-minded deity at war with himself? It sounds like two different people. How do we reconcile these things in our lives? The, these two truths about one God, that he is patient, he's a father, he's tender, he's calling you by name, he wants to draw you near, but at the same time, if you reject him, if you refuse it, then there's a danger that he withholds his word. How do we reconcile those things? Well, I think the answer is found in Hebrews 3.15, which is a quote from Psalm 95. Listen to this. It's one sentence. This is how we reconcile these two truths that we've encountered here in this one text. Today, today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Israel, who rebelled against God even though they had heard his voice, even though he had delivered them miraculously by, by his mighty hand, he had taken them to, to Sinai and there he revealed his glory to them and he gave them his commandments and entered into covenant relationship with his people. God, whose, whose glory dwelt amidst them and spoke to them through the prophets, and yet they, in their hard-heartedness and in their stubbornness, rejected him. And th this window that had been opened to them to enter into the fullness of the joy of the Lord was shut. They rejected him and as a result, they never entered into his rest and an entire generation of Israelites perished in the wilderness. He is tender. He is patient. He is long-suffering. His greatest desire is absolutely to draw near to you. But when he does speak to you, don't miss your window of opportunity to respond to his voice. Now, I would love to conclude our, uh, our time. You probably would love for me to conclude our time right here too. But there is one more difficult part of this passage that we, we, have, to, we have to look at together. If I were to, to quit here with you know, Samuel finally recognizing who was speaking and opening his heart to Yahweh, this wonderful moment of entering into the joy of his presence, the Lord came and stood and he was right there and they were having this intimate, intimate moment. Um, but if I were to stop there, I would not only be unfaithful to the text, but... It wouldn't be honest with regard to the full implications of being truly open to God in his word. Look in verse 11 one more time. What, what, is, what is happening here in verse 11? Well, Samuel is given what on the surface really seems like an impossible task. Right? Samuel, this boy who's just now recognized the voice of the Lord for the first time in his life. We're, we're talking like, about the age of that, that crew that was just here a moment ago. Imagine God showing up to one of these children and giving, giving them this command, this task. What is he supposed to go do? Well, he has been charged with basically going to his, his own surrogate father to tell him about God's coming judgment for him and his sons. Yikes. No sooner is Samuel brought into the fellowship and counsel of Yahweh than he is burdened by its demands. Do you see where I'm going with this? 
there will always be a tension for those who seek to be faithful to God and his word. Yes, we're invited to enter into the joy of his fellowship, but with that comes a duty to live by and proclaim the truth of his word and love to the world around us. It doesn't mean we're to be critical and judgmental all the time. It doesn't mean that we're you know, always in people's faces and we're, we're putting them in their place. But it also doesn't mean that we're just to sit passively by in silence. You and I are called to be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ in this world, to have a prophetic message among the nations, one that tells forth a message that will, yes, comfort the afflicted. You absolutely have words that will comfort the afflicted, but you also have words and a duty to share them that they might afflict the comfortable. And it won't always be easy, but we have a mission to carry out. We have a, a gospel to proclaim, and the Jew will be offended by it, and the Gentile will call it nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, it is the wisdom and the power of God. So what is your choice today? What is the choice of this church? Will we be a people that not only hears and receives the word of God, but also one that will do the word of God? Are you willing to place yourself in the right position? And you've done that this morning. I commend you for being here. <laughs> you absolutely, at least this morning, have put yourself in the right position. But it's not just being physically in the right position. It is having the right disposition of the heart. Will you put yourself in the right position and have the right attitude and disposition that, that God could speak to you, that you could genuinely hear and encounter the living, speaking God in his word? And will you live it out no matter how difficult or costly it will be? God's voice has not gone silent, even amidst our own wicked culture and generation. He still deals patiently with people and speaks powerfully through his word, but it is the word that has been entrusted to his church. We have been given with our lives and for this day a window of opportunity to hear, to receive, to believe, but then also to live out and to do and proclaim his word to the world. And I pray that we would be faithful and not miss our window of opportunity before it closes. Let us pray. <clears throat> After 400 years of silence between the end of the Old and beginning of the New Testaments, after 400 years of silence, the word of God himself came into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God himself. Jesus, we thank you that in your incarnation, you, the, in the fullness of God, drew near to us. God in flesh. 
And we praise and worship you that just as it says in our passage that the Lord came and stood in the final hours of the night, you came back from the dead and stood up in the grave in the final hours before dawn. You are the eternal son of the Father. And by your person and work, we can become sons and daughters of God by grace. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and all that you have done. Father, we thank you for knowing us by name. We thank you for dealing patiently with us. We thank you for your long suffering, for making allowances for our own ignorance and weakness, for not giving up on us, even when we may have given up on you. Help us, Lord, even now, to hear your call. Help us to be sensitive to the the sweet, still, small voice, the gentle tug in our hearts. Your, your, Your voice, Lord, help us to hear it. Help us not harden our hearts, but help us to say, to respond to you in faith. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. May we be a church that does just that. And not just on Sunday mornings, but every morning and every day as we live out our lives in the world as a Christ-centered community of holy love that seeks to draw people into the worship of the triune God and disciple them to minister to their world. Lord, may we be what you've created and designed for us to be. For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.